Lord, uh, we believe that in Jesus, the words of that song are true for us. Goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Uh, Lord, we don't uh, always see the goodness that you are giving to us, but we know that one day we will look back and be able to say that it was all grace, that you're always working for our good to grow us into the likeness of Christ. Uh, and Lord, we pray that that would be what you would do now, that your goodness and mercy would be pursuing us in the word preached today, uh, that you would be showing us true treasure in our God, and that our hearts would be led to treasure our Lord above all other things. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you haven't, take a moment to flick open a Bible to Luke chapter 12. Yep, there, there's my words. Um, yeah, we're, in, we're going from verse 13 today. Um, but I just wanted to say something very quickly uh, that we should have said. There's, there's something that we haven't mentioned over the last couple of weeks uh, about the bit of the Bible that we're in uh, that it really does bear mentioning because it helps us to, as we approach God's word to seeking to understand it uh, on its own terms. Um, and, you know, and the thing is that we are we're currently, at the moment, the passage that we're in is a part of a big slab of teaching. Um, if you, if you flick through, you know, take, if you take your Bible and flick back a few pages, what you'll find is that the bits of Luke we've been in before chapter 12, before the last couple of weeks, have these statements in them like, and he moved on from there, or, and he was invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house, or things like that, things that tell us that the context is changing. Uh, but we don't get any of those, actually, from, from uh, the start of chapter 12, uh, in fact, just a bit before the start of chapter 12, through to kind of chapter 13, verse 10. It's this long-ish slab, and we get a few of these in a row coming up. Uh, and, and you might think, hearing me say that, well, why is that important? Surely I can understand God's word, uh, you know, what's being said perfectly fine just reading this bit. Uh, but the thing is that this bit isn't really just a bit. Do you, do you see what I mean? Uh, there's this dangerous thing that we do when we read the Bible uh, which can inadvertently be encouraged by the way that we preach the Bible sometimes, uh, where, where we approach it like a bunch of disconnected chunks, um, par paragraphs that teach a, a single message, uh, but, but we never see the glorious whole of the thing. Um, and that, that doesn't work. You know, it, it should be self-evident, but sometimes we're so practiced in reading the Bible in, in chunks that, that, that it's not. Um, if, if I wrote you a letter... Uh, and you, you interpreted the paragraphs of that letter independent of each other, without reference to each other, you, you'd probably miss most of what I'm saying, or a lot of what I'm saying. You'd misinterpret a lot of what I'm saying, because it has to be understood in context. Uh, that's true of the Bible as well. So, so to, to place this, we are, as you, as you may remember um, from previous weeks, we're in a, a section of Luke's gospel here that's called the travel narrative. It's Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. It goes all the way from chapter 9 of Luke through to chapter 19 of Luke. It's the largest chunk of the gospel. Um, and it's Jesus on the way, not just to Jerusalem, but of course to the cross, uh, to his death that he has been painfully self-aware of as he's been going ahead. And from the beginning of, of chapter 12, in the presence of the crowds, Jesus has been teaching his disciples. Uh, and the progressive thread that we see, kind of Jesus uh, uh, teasing out here, is that of motivation. Uh, what, is, what is 
the thing that motivates our hearts, what should be the thing that motivates our hearts. He speaks to our hearts about what we should and should not be motivated by. And so he warned his disciples back in chapter 12, verses kind of one to three, uh, that against hypocrisy. And then he explained that by that, uh, he explained that by weighing these two fears, uh, the fear of man and the fear of God. And uh, at his fill here, or dad, as some of us call him, uh, brought us last week. Don't just start calling him dad, by the way. Um, or you could. Uh, as he brought us last week, the glorious truth there was that as we come to realize that only God is worth fearing and that he loves us as, as we encounter other fears in our lives we are equipped then to rebuke them with the truth that I'm with the one who is the only one worth fearing and that's so relevant because don't we face so many fears I, I don't want to preach all of last week's sermon back at you again but aren't, aren't we in the middle of a world right now that is gripped by fear in an exceptional way Fear for tomorrow, fear of loss, fear of government, fear of lawlessness and lawfulness, often simultaneously. Uh, that, that's an odd one. Uh, fear, fear of a virus, you know, is the, the obvious, obvious choice. And yet in the midst of that, we have this releasing truth as the people of God. God, who is over it all and the only one worth fearing, is with us. So we need not fear. We can fight our fears. And, and do you see that if, that if we live in that reality as God's people, it, it's actually quite a missional reality. It's quite an evangelistic reality, if you will. Because if I, if I bring the love of God for me uh, that I find in the gospel to bear on my life, on my fears, and I live in the midst of a world where people are afraid and have nothing to look to in those fears, no, no steady anchor like you have no uh, solid rock to stand on then then when we encounter people who are afraid we are equipped then to offer the one true anchor the one true rock the one steadiness in the storms Jesus anyway enough on last week uh, right now we're approaching Luke chapter 12 from verse 13 and as we approach our passage today, Jesus actually makes a turn a little bit from speaking to our fear motivators to speaking to our treasure motivators. He turns from what we fear to what we want. Have you ever met someone who really wants something? I think, I think if we thought hard enough, we would all say that, yes, we have. And yes, we've been that person at some point. Um, everyone, everyone's motivated by desire. You know, there's this single-minded determination, though, that you see, isn't there? When, when you find a person who knows what they want and knows what they need to do to get to it. Desire can push people to do some crazy things. People have sailed across oceans before uh, with minimal to no sailing experience because they knew, I have to get to that person because they're going to make me happy if I'm with that person. When a person lies, when a person cheats, when a person steals, even when a person murders, it is always, I would argue, because they want something. You know, there was a time when otherwise, this is less so with the internet age, but there was a time when otherwise lazy video gamers would get up at like 11.30 at night and go to the shop and stand outside the shop for a midnight release of a video game. That's the sort of motivation you never see from that crowd. And yet desire, <laughs> um, I did it once to my shame. Um, it was a long time ago. I had a friend who made me. Uh, 
you know, the, the story for me actually that came to mind when I was thinking about this idea of being driven by desire uh, was, was one from a, a really long time ago when I was in year five. So picture John, but shorter. There's less beard, but not a lot less, let's be honest. Um, you know, I, I really, really wanted uh, Pokemon cards. Uh, now, now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, count yourself blessed. Um, but, but they're a trading card thing. It felt like all of the other kids in my class had them, right? Uh, in fact, some of them actually did have lots of these things. Uh, fortunately, my parents here uh, wouldn't let me get any. Thank you again for that. Yeah, if that was a clap, then it was supported. Um, but I, I remember there was this moment uh, when, when one person who had a very large collection of these things actually had their collection disappear midway through a school day. And she was one of the big hitters in kind of the local Pokemon scene uh, in Middleton. So this was, this was huge news to, to the year five group. And, and magically, at the same time, one other person's collection grew quite massively. <laughs> Uh, in, in, moment, in a moment, right? Uh, largely consisting of the, the sort of the same cards that had just disappeared from the other person's collection. Um, and you're going to be disappointed because I don't remember how this story ends. Um, but, but people, like, I'm going to leave it self-evident what happened there. People will do some crazy things when they want something, when they believe something will fulfill them and make them happy. Um, Augustine, he's, he's one of the, the, probably the greatest of the early-ish church fathers, uh, wrote that every man, and, and woman we should add, every man and woman desires to be happy. There's no man who does not desire this, and each one desires it with such earnestness that he prefers it to all other things. We're all seeking to be happy, to be fulfilled. And everyone seeks a treasure that they think will give that to them. By the end of today's passage and sermon, I, 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 just, just like we weighed the two fears last week, uh, when Jesus weighed the two fears last week, uh, we're going to see that Jesus will have weighed two treasures this week in the scales. And, and we're going to see, I pray and I hope, that only one of them is worth your heart's desires. Only one fulfills and only one can give us true peace. Uh, and we're going to see that that, that that is a releasing truth for us. And again, a, a missional truth if we apply it. So join me now as, as, we, as we step into Luke chapter 12 from verse 13. Luke writes, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Pause there for a sec. Yeah, this guy gets it, right? No. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit sarcastic there. Here's Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, right? On the road to the cross, having stated that he's on the road to the cross, preaching the gospel to the disciples and to the crowds. And this guy, he throws his hand in the air and says, excuse me. Sorry, I, I read a bit of tone into this. Uh, Jesus, my brother won't give me my part of the inheritance. Tell him to give me what's mine and do the right thing. You know, Jesus doesn't stop me from reading tone into this passage, by the way, because he responds with, man. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, like the modern equivalent is, come on, man. Uh, who made me your judge? Who made me your judge or arbitrator? You know, the funny thing in the background there is that he's actually speaking to the judge of the living and the dead. Um, and he throws this 
petty issue in front of him. But basically, this guy sees that Jesus has authority, that he is someone that people listen to, uh, and so he seeks to put his agenda into the mouth of Jesus. He wants Jesus to give him his definition of justice. He wants Jesus to give him what he wants. And, and before we move on, two quick vital observations on, on that idea. One, it's very, very easy to criticise this guy. You know, it's an obvious mistake, right? We can, we can acknowledge that. Using Jesus as a means to an end is, is, a, is a clear mistake. Number two, more often than we would like to admit, I think we are this guy. How often do we act like the Christian life consists primarily of, say, maintaining my rights? Or, or maintaining my status or what I have? Let, let me ask you a couple of, of diagnostic questions here to help consider the ways in which we might relate to this guy. What's your definition of living a good life? What's the thing that pops into your mind when I say the good life? So often we act like the best thing that can happen for us is that we live a comfortable, prosperous life, a free life, perhaps. You know, not free in Jesus' sense, free in the, you know, political, social sense. We kind of end up being functional prosperity gospel believers in some ways. You know, in Revelation chapter 2 to 3, we mentioned this last week, we've been reading Revelation recently. Uh, chapter 2 to 3, Jesus speaks directly to seven churches in seven cities. And, you know, to a church that has no money, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And then to the church with money, he says, you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, it's not that there is something inherently wrong with having money. But how often do we reveal that we think we are better off than a church that lacks money? We're very happy in the Western church, in this, in this church even, I would say, to, to thank God for giving us a nation with lots of rights, lots of money, lots of freedom. But if we were financially poor and on fire for Jesus, uh, reaching the lost, we would see that as a, as a potentially a piti pitiable situation, I think. You know, cl clearly Jesus' economy is a bit different to our economy. <laughs> Second question, how often is the greatest desire in your life about an injustice done to you? About writing something that has been wronged or, or about getting something that you want? Worldly thing. You know, I'm not, I'm not getting what I deserve. There's injustice being done to me, you know? It's, it's, it's not how the Christian life is to look. So seeing that this isn't just his struggle, but our struggle as well, let's, let's see how Jesus deals with this situation. And he cuts straight to the thick of it. Uh, the first, first thing Jesus does is that he doesn't decide to answer the question. Or, or really, he doesn't decide to decide the case. He doesn't go, yes, you can have the money, or no, your brother deserves it more. He just doesn't do it. He won't play the ball game. Instead, Jesus is targeting something much deeper. He targets the heart and what the heart is worshipping. And so he says to the whole crowd, 
Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, Jesus knows how tempting money and stuff can be for us, so he warns your life is about more than the stuff that you have. So if we're talking about the economy of Jesus, what makes a person rich in his eyes which as Christians we must acknowledge are the only eyes that matter, then we, we have to admit that stuff ranks pretty low in Jesus' eyes, like material stuff. What you have doesn't define who you are, he says. In fact, more than that, what you have in terms of physical possessions and money and anything this world has to offer does not necessarily make you better off in Jesus' eyes. And to tell us why, Jesus gives this parable. There's a rich farmer. I'm going I'm to paraphrase it down a bit here. There's a rich farmer. Um, I, incidentally, I love how much better the parables of the Bible read in the country than the city. Um, we have a distinct advantage here. The city, they have to explain what a farm is. Um, no, but you get the point, right? Like they're, they're so agricultural. Um, there's this rich farmer. And one year, his land is really productive. And so what does he do? He builds a bigger barn. The modern equivalent is that he gets a bigger bank account. Um, we, don't, we, don't, we, we get someone else to build our barns up at our Drossen and Port Giles these days. Um, and having so much uh, to support himself, he congratulates himself. In fact, significantly, Jesus says he speaks to his soul about how safe and secure it is. What's his exact words there? Let me read them. He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And this is where we, we reach the crux of the problem, right? Nothing in this world can give your soul safety. No amount of money, no amount of food, family, tech, wine, art, cars, books, anything else you can gain from this world in this life can guarantee you one more day of this life or move the state of your soul after this life an inch. And that's what we see because the, the rich man in all of his security is judged a fool by God because that night he dies. And the money, the food, the family, the tech, the wine, the art, the cars, the books, none of it matters anymore. In fact, it's meaningless. In fact, it's less than meaningless. It's not even his anymore. You see, the, the things you could gain here may seem very tempting at times. And I, I get that. But in the end, they're not what you need. And they don't, they don't deserve your deepest desires. It's a, it's a fool's gold in the end. It's worthless to you in the final sense. So, so the thrust, the point of this first section is don't desire the fool's gold of this world. Don't put that as the treasure of your heart. It's a mistake. It, it makes you a fool. But in those last words, Jesus begins to hint at what we should treasure when he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God is how the, the ESV translates it, pretty literally. So, so Jesus is, as we said, pitting two treasures against each other this week. 
on the one hand, having everything this world can offer. And, and, and Jesus weighs that and decides that it's fool's gold. It's foolishness. It's, it's worthless. And on the other, this thing that is being rich toward God. And to put it simply, to, put, to be rich toward God is to value God as your supreme treasure. To hold him as what we value the most. And to desire all other, put all other desires in submission to this one great desire. We see it a bit here. He calls us to be rich toward God, not just meaning to be rich by God's definition, I don't think, but meaning that God is your richness, your wealth. And we get it explained further in places like uh, Luke 16 that we'll get to eventually, uh, where Jesus will again pit these two treasures against each other. Uh, and and uh, he's going to convey them as two masters there because they're two things that rule us. And he'll say that you cannot serve God and money, meaning that the one treasure is money and the other treasure is God. I love, I love C.S. Lewis's words on, on treasure. Um, he wrote that um, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with, with drink and sex and ambition when, when infinite joy is offered. Like an, like an ignorant child. Who, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he just can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We, we are far too easily pleased. And if there's, there's one little thing in there in his quote that I, that I disagree with, uh, that I think he I just got a touch wrong, it's that he calls us pleased with the things of this world. When the reality is that we are never really pleased we are always seeking to fill an emptiness until we find the treasure we were made to treasure. If I can throw one more quote at you, um, I know I'm do, doing a bit of quoting today, but Augustine, who I mentioned at the start, he wrote, um, you, that is God, made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. To be, to be rich toward God is to treasure the one thing that is of infinite worth and is an infinite source of joy, rather than the disappointing treasures of the world. But now, uh, moving forward, Jesus drops this incredible, life-changing reality. It's not just better in the long run, in the eternal sense. It's not just better in the eternal sense, but better by far in the here and now to be rich towards God than to love the treasures of this world. There's joy and freedom now in treasuring God. Jesus turns to his disciples and he, and he tells them not to worry about the treasures of this world. This is verse 22. Do not be worried, be anxious about your life. He, he picks such a, a basic thing that we may even be tempted not to see it as an example of treasure at all, right? He says, don't be anxious about your life what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. His basic reasoning so far is don't worry about the treasures of this world, even down to your most basic needs. Because if you are rich toward God, you have the most important thing and it won't be taken away. But then he gives this incredible, this releasing promise. Here it is. 
He says, look at the birds. God provides for them and he loves his children so much more than the birds. Look at the flowers. God dresses them in splendor, even though their time is brief. He'll take care of your needs too. What he's saying is when, when God's people treasure him, he provides for them. We can trust that. We can trust that because he has given us the greatest treasure himself, we can trust him to provide for our other needs. Now, that's not a promise from God that you will be rich. That, that would be twisting the Bible to say something it doesn't. It doesn't, this is not even a promise that we will get what we what think we need when we need it. It's a promise that we will get what God knows we need when we need it. And he does know, he made us, he knows better than we ever will know what we need. Can, can you see how this is releasing? How this is freeing to our souls? Because the whole world is, is, is gripped in worry. Worry about food, worry about clothes, worry about housing. And, and if you get those basics down, um, then the treasure of this world will not release you from worry. I don't know if you've run into that. You know, most of us have food, clothing and a roof. There will always be that hole inside demanding to be filled with stuff or relationships or whatever. Different people fill it different ways, but it's never full. Jesus saves us and brings us to God. He becomes our great treasure and we, he can be trusted to provide for our needs so we can be free from the worry, do you see? Free from the striving to fill ourselves because we are filled with the fullness of God, to steal some words from Paul there. And he's got the details. Jesus calls him a treasure that does not grow old, that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And so Jesus rounds out this passage by making the, the command here clear, seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Seeking the kingdom here is basically the same thing as being rich towards God. We seek to live in a way that reveals that God is our king. And not just king, but that he is everything to us, that he is over us. More important than any other treasure, than even food and clothing. That in every area of our life he stands supreme. And we can rest assured that God loves to honour that desire. He, he will lead us as our good king. So, so the question, really, that we have remaining is, what does it look like to be rich towards God? You know, we've defined it. We've defined that it is treasuring God above all else. But practically, what does that mean? It's a bit nebulous, isn't it? It's a bit distant. And, and let, me, let me bring this down on the ground in three ways. Um, the first is, is a personal application. If you wanted to sum it up, I think you'd say that being rich toward God looks like showing by the way we use the lesser treasures of this world that we treasure God above them all and we trust him to provide. This means that as Christians, we're to be countercultural. 
in how, in how we approach our money and our stuff. Our houses, our cars, everything, our time. Because those things aren't our treasure. So we're called to be radically generous, for instance, because money isn't our treasure, and so we can give like a person who treasures money cannot. The Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver. It's not, just, it's not just saying that God wants you to smile as you give to a church. It's saying, uh, <laughs> it's sometimes treated that way, isn't it? But the point is in that passage is that if you give generously, are a generous person, generally speaking, then that reveals that in your heart you value what he gives more than what you have. But we have them in order to spread the good news of the kingdom and make the goodness of our king known to everyone. You know, do you, do you see the spread of the kingdom as a top priority in your life? It's an indicator of whether you are treasuring God above the treasures of this world. Do you see it as something that everything else you have is to be submitted to? Now, to, to, I said three, that's number one. Our second application, to take it one step further, uh, do you see that this sort of thinking applies to the way that we make disciples? Now, now, one of our four core values here at Gospel Church, because it's in the Bible, is discipleship. We want to be a church that makes disciples. And so this, this instructs how we do that. The way that Christians grow together to be like Jesus is, is what I mean by discipleship. When we treasure God more than the lesser treasures of this world, and when we submit those treasures to him, then we build an abundance of discipleship opportunities in our lives. Because where God is transforming you to treasure him, he has then equipped you to be instrumental in the transformation of someone else. We get to speak gospel change into each other's lives. He intends this of us. We get to speak gospel change into each other's treasures and values so that we all might treasure God more and grow to be more like Jesus in doing it. You know, not, not just to speak into each other's lives, but to demonstrate into each other's lives. It's such an inspiring thing when you see a person who values God with their life, isn't it? It's such an instructive thing to see good examples. Again and again, the Bible tells us to, call, to look to the good examples. And it's true that so, so much more is, is caught than is taught. Um, let me give an example. As, as a parent, sometimes it can be tempting to make your kids' financial stability the top priority, kind of your, your treasure for them. Or to make giving them a, a good inheritance your top priority. Or to make making them happy all of the time your top priority. And, and those things become these little treasures, right? But what we don't realise is that when we do that, we're actually, um, we're, we're not just providing for the kids. We are actually teaching them what they need provided. We're teaching them how to prioritise. How to treasure. What our kids need from us. And, and this is an illustration, by the way. This applies to all discipleship. What they need from us, and when I say all discipleship, I mean every relationship with every other Christian you ever know. 
is for us to show them a higher priority than a good inheritance or an easy life or a well-to-do life. They need to see parents that will sacrifice for God's kingdom. Because they can't, uh, because, because then, sorry, then they'll learn that that's what Christians do. That's how we live. We value God that much. They need to see parents who make the time in their life to get to know the lost because, because then they will functionally believe that treasuring God means spreading the good news. They need to see parents who are, who are generous with their money and with their time so that they can grow to know that you, you can treasure God so much that you're willing to lose the lesser treasures of this world. They need to see parents who make the big decisions uh, of, of, of things like location, things like house buying, things like school choice, although that's a little bit more limited around here. Uh, things of like where you work based on the need to reach the lost and to make the name of Jesus known. And they need to see it in the small decisions too. How we speak the gospel and how we, sorry, how we speak to people and how we drive our car and, and treat other people on the road and how we uh, uh, use our small spare bits of time as well. Our deepest, our deepest desire for our kids um, is, is that they would have an eternal inheritance. I think, I think that's echoed I hope by every parent here. Um, I think a lot of Christian parents would, would agree with me on that. Um, but let's, let's take it the logical step further and say that doesn't just mean that I want them to have come to saving faith. I want them to live by faith. Or, or another way to put that is I want them to treasure Jesus so much more than anything else. So much that they will willingly lose everything else if it means being able to follow him. To treasure him so dearly that they value uh, not money or clothing or food or me uh, or anything else above the one true need and greatest desire, God. And that they would live in the glorious freedom of being able to trust that because God has filled their greatest desire for him, he will provide for their other needs. Now, is it self-evident how that is a picture, not just of parenting, but of how we live as disciple makers? I hope so. Because I'm just using it as an illustration. This is what discipleship looks like. Living out the reality of treasuring and trusting God and leading others to do the same by word and by example. Final thing, this applies to, uh, applies expansively to the area of mission, of evangelism. If we're experiencing the treasuring of God in every part of our lives and so are uh, able to trust him with the rest and not hoard up worldly treasures, then that is one of those areas where God will then do through you what he has done to you. Because he's given you contentment over covetousness, treasure that does not fade, when other people strive after the treasures of this world that disappoint, that leave empty, we have the opportunity to speak gospel truth into their lives. To speak into the pain, to speak into the disappointment of that striving and failing with the one who is fulfilling us 
and to say, Jesus is better than those things that you go after. Go after him instead. Trust me. It works. And with that, I think we need to pray for ourselves. So would you join me? God, our great need is that you would be the treasure of our hearts. Our great need is you. We were, we were created in your image to show your glory. We were created to live in the glory of God by living in relationship with you. We need you. We are nothing without you. Lord, make us rich toward God. Be the treasure of our hearts. Be the treasure in the heavens that does not fade because you don't fade, Lord. Help us to seek your kingdom above all things. Lead us to be kingdom people, Lord. Lead us not to be car people, not to be money people, not to be success or ambition people, not to be self-satisfaction people. Lord, help us to be satisfied in you to be rich toward God. And Lord, as you do it, yeah, lead us to be people who lead others in that as well. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.